In time past, many romantic feelings were associated with radio broadcasting, as with aviation or with motoring across the far western United States. Such memories have a certain literary appeal, no doubt, but they are also authentic. That's the voice of Lewis Hill, founder of the Pacifica Radio Network. This is from the Vault Remixed, a weekly Pacifica Radio Archives program. Each week, we pick a subject, sometimes date-specific, sometimes seemingly random, and we'll go through the Pacifica Radio Archives Vault, the largest of its kind in the country, and pull out the best materials possible. And yes, remix them into something we hope you'll come to look forward to, set your watches by, or grab the whole family and listen. Listen to the power of radio. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. This week, we're celebrating the 57th anniversary of the network Lewis Hill founded. But instead of a typical collage of all the great clips from Pacifica's past, we're looking specifically at the two people who most define the network. The first, of course, is Lewis Hill, pacifist, conscientious objector, and Pacifica founder. The second is Elsa Knight Thompson, one of the first women radio broadcasters, an award-winning journalist and famed interviewer. These two were the spirit of Pacifica for the network's first 20 years, and their spirits still guide the network. They shared a common belief, a fundamental belief that all opinions were entitled to an outlet, that everyone is entitled to a voice. Or, in the words of Elsa Knight Thompson herself, Pacifica Foundation was conceived by a group of people who wished to contribute to the growth of an enlightened and peaceful society. They believed this could best be done not by conforming to any stated position, but by exploring and discussing the information, the concepts of individual awareness and responsibility, which make the democratic process tenable. Pacifica Radio. It's the oldest listener-sponsored radio in the United States, reaching from the San Francisco Bay Area and the metropolis of Los Angeles to the eastern cities of New York and Washington, D.C., and to the southwest city of Houston, Texas. The noble experiment began in 1949 in Berkeley, California, when KPFA first took to the airwaves a new concept in broadcasting. It was called Listener Sponsorship, and was the brainchild of Lewis Hill, a radio broadcaster and a Quaker who was intensely concerned with the strife between individuals and between nations in our modern society. He was aware that the arts can be a bridge of communication and believed that radio could become the medium for expression and for exploration into the conflicts in society. With a hard-working staff of four and with $15,000 in the bank, KPFA FM was born April 15, 1949. During World War II, Lewis Hill was a conscientious objector, or CO, who served over a year at the Colville Camp for COs. He suffered from debilitating arthritis and was excused with 4F status and released from the camp in 1943. Hill went on to work with the ACLU in an effort to help those COs who refused to cooperate with the camp system. But money was tight, and so he ended up getting a job at WINX in Washington, D.C. as an announcer. His wife, Joy Cole Hill, explained how their work in commercial radio led to the idea of Pacifica. Well, most of all, it started because we were in radio, Lou and I, and we were unhappy in radio. 
and I suppose like everybody else, we daydreamed about our own ideal radio station, and um, the more we thought about it, the more we realized that nobody would pay for it because advertisers, we'd be talking to a minority, you know, and advertisers are very unfond of minorities. They like the largest possible body count for their dollar. We went into the whole idea of co-op radio as a possibility in the beginning and discovered that this was not legally possible. Things that go out on airwaves don't classify as products, and you've got to have a product to have a co-op to market it. So the only thing that seemed to be left was the idea that perhaps people who would also be interested in this would pay for it. Lewis Hill was a committed pacifist who believed politics could be done nonviolently with an emphasis on spiritual rather than material values. But those ideas don't pay for themselves, and it was figuring out a method and a formula for how to compose a budget that truly made listener-supported radio viable. Hill published an essay called The Theory of Listener-Sponsored Radio in 1952, where he wrote, quote, The survival of this station is based upon the necessity of voluntary subscriptions from 2% of the total FM audience in the area in which it operates. Based on that simple formula, a new station could figure out how much money they would need from each subscriber per year to survive. The formula still pretty much holds up today and is incorporated in public radio stations everywhere. But getting the station started, especially the first ever of its kind, took more than a good business model. As Hill said, It just goes to show, as someone remarked lately, what can happen when a crazy idea is joined with sufficiently stubborn dispositions. And there were plenty of stubborn dispositions helping out in Berkeley. And after two years of fundraising, securing a broadcast license, and constructing the studios, KPFA finally made it on the air. Again, Lewis Hill. Broadcasting actually started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on April 15, 1949. On the other hand, according to the improvised schedule of those days, the station went off the air at 6 o'clock so that the staff, all seven of us, could go to supper. And then it returned to the air at 7.30 and continued more or less until 10.30. But after its first two days on the air, KPFA had uh, equipment trouble and was forced to remain silent for the following three days. So it was on April 21st, 1949, that we took a big breath and started off again, this time without further technical hitches. Whether KPFA's legitimate age is affected by these early lacunae is a question, I guess, which we will leave for the statisticians. Lewis Hill was also a humorous and rather sarcastic individual. On the occasion of KPFA's eighth birthday, while he reported to the listeners the station's status, he let his humor and some of his frustrations be known. When the station resumed broadcasting, its, its signal, tiny though it was, was immediately reported from several points to be the clearest in the area. Its operation was trouble-free thereafter. Anyone who has listened to KPFA for some years or followed its history will surely find the last sentence in this description amusing. Trouble-free indeed. Lewis Hill was the driving force behind the station. He was KPFA's general manager and dealt with the back and forth between factions and the compromising here and there, but most of all, he dealt with the incredible stresses that comes with running a public radio station. 
and no one probably ever realized it could be so difficult. Lorenzo Milam, in his book Sex in Broadcasting, talks about the life of a community broadcasting manager. Terry O'Brien reads. Interior politics, the very thing I wrote this book to protect you from, have taken their toll. I keep thinking of what I was when I wrote this, wondering where those particular sunrises have squatted off to, and why. FM has grown up, is now where AM radio was at the end of World War II. Community radio has become crowded, and there are controversies between stations and between staffs of the stations, which are no longer rewarding or interesting. And the person who elects to be the leader of such an operation, or several such operations, is asking for endless pain no matter how he tries to isolate himself from it. People care too goddamn much, which is, I guess, what we were working for all along. But I never knew it would work out exactly like this. When we set off on that trip into the mountains, I never guessed that we would end up down at the bottom of this rock quarry, with the slag heaps all around us and the trees denuded and ugly in the cold, harsh five o'clock sunset. Although that is not exactly the life Lewis Hill led at Pacifica, no one can argue his life was not difficult. But despite all the constant infighting that he had to deal with, most difficult for Hill was his battle with spinal arthritis. He lived in constant pain and relied on massive doses of cortisone injected into his back in order to make it through each day. And just a few months after KPFA's eighth birthday, Lewis Hill took his own life. There was much controversy as to why he did it, and much confusion over why a pacifist would kill himself. Alan Watts, the famed philosopher and popular KPFA commentator, spoke to his listeners about the loss of Hill. For is the final test of character just how much suffering one can take? This always depends on how sensitive you are. And to be human is above all to be sensitive. And this means, I think, that the measure of character becomes, among other things, the quality rather than the quantity of one's suffering. The most human people are capable of exquisite pain, but not for long. Now this leads me to a quite different matter with which I want to close this program. I am sure you all know by now that Lewis Hill, the man who founded and ran this station for so long, recently took his own life. Not, he said, for anger or for despair, but for peace. I know there are those who have shaken their heads, saying, too bad he couldn't take it. For we have been drilled into the idea that to take one's own life is at root a cowardly solution to a problem. Lewis Hill was a man who believed very much in the importance and necessity of struggle at the spiritual level, so much so that we have often had arguments about it. However, he was at the same time a pacifist and a poet and a great humanist. And this is simply to say that he was extremely sensitive. 
He was not made to take it as if he were a human punching bag. And thus life forced him to discover what Chesterton called the splendid limitations of being a man. For the depth and quality of human consciousness is outlined and defined by its borders beyond which there are things which it cannot take. Thus our very weaknesses are our strengths. And as Lao Tzu said, suppleness and tenderness are the concomitants of life, rigidity and hardness are the concomitants of death. Now believe me, it's no easy matter to run a truly imaginative and creative institution in these times. Not only do the very people who have the imagination and creativity often lack the sheer business or administrative cunning which every institution now seems to require, but it's also the very devil to find adequate money for any cultural enterprise which does not kowtow to the sacred cow of being academically and socially sound, which means merely dull. Although Lewis Hill was no businessman, he had an extraordinary gift for finding emergency funds, and repeatedly his genius saved KPFA from collapse. Now, my friends, this genius is withdrawn, and tired as some of you may be of hearing it, the future of KPFA is again in danger. To the very best of my knowledge, there is no other radio station, not only in the United States, but in the world, over which one may speak as freely or as deeply as KPFA, let alone hear such music, drama, or poetry. Alan Watts then asked his listeners to contribute to the station as a memorial to the brave man, the very sensitive man, who has fought for seven years to give you in Northern California the privilege of having the only really free and unashamedly creative and adventurous radio station in the world. Tell everybody earlier in April of 1957, when Lewis Hill gave his status report to the listeners on KPFA's eighth birthday, a woman walked into the station in Berkeley to volunteer. She got off to a rocky start at the station, but soon earned everyone's respect when they learned her history. She had lived in England during the Second World War and worked as a journalist for the BBC. Among her many milestones reporting the war, she wrote the first documented BBC report on the Nazi Holocaust. Her name was Elsa Knight Thompson 
and with her extensive experience and her own perfectionism, she charged into KPFA and vowed to change it for the better. According to Matthew Lazar's book, Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, at least one KPFA staff member recalled her saying shortly after the death of Hill, Your leader is dead. I have come to be your leader. She was convinced that Lewis Hill had wanted Pacifica to be a place to tell the truth, and Elsa believed that she was Hill's, if not physical successor, his spiritual successor. And so she set off creating programs that did not report the status quo. You've got to have a real consciousness and conscience about the world that you live in if you're going to presume to ask thousands of people to listen to what you or other people whom you select have to say. We were doing documentaries on Vietnam when most Americans couldn't find it on the map. We were putting people on the air talking about the racial problem in the South long before it was front-page news. In 1958, Elsa Knight Thompson presented what was most likely the first program ever in U.S. broadcast history on gay rights, called The Homosexual in Our Society. Uh, the rules and regulations, uh, <clears throat> wherever sex has uh, come into the picture at any level, it seems to me, uh, as a layperson, that we're dealing here with the very roots of uh, the most sensitive area in all of human expression, which is irretrievably mixed up with our emotional and religious and, and physical attitudes. And therefore, it, it uh, uh, is certainly a question of how much enlightenment we can uh, get in trying to deal with our most uh, really profound uh, problems in relation to, to life itself. And where the law comes into that is something which is not at all clear to me as a, as a lay person. I, if it's a job for anyone to uh, help the uh, homosexual to make his adjustment to society, it does seem to me to be the job of a, of a physician or a psychiatrist or an analyst rather than a judge. You know, I think that uh, uh, would you, all of you find yourselves in agreement with that? Uh, there was one thing. I wonder if you happened to pick up uh, Mr. Kahlo, representing the Medicine, in his first comment said something about homosexualism rather than homosexuality, yeah. which I think is a good social way to look at it. It isn't ism, it's a way of life. And as far as the law is concerned, or at least criminal law or society, uh, they treat it as an ism, as a way of life which they feel threatening to them. Actually, if you look at any of the criminal laws, you won't find any reference to homosexuals or homosexuality in the law itself. Homosexuality is not made a crime in this country. There's no reference to homosexuals in any of the statutes. The, they are prosecuted, if they are, under laws that are generally vague and ambiguous, uh, terminology which would apply not just to homosexuals, but to heterosexuals or any individuals. Have they any idea how they're going to uh, remove the civil rights of one element in the population without uh, removing everyone else's civil rights? What is to stop the police force or anybody else who's operating along those lines from deciding that a place where Democrats congregate or Methodists congregate or anybody else congregates uh, are undesirable? The program went on to win the California State Fair Press, Radio, and Television Award, which was one of many awards her programs won over the years. Besides her radical programs, Elsa was known for her interviews. She famously interviewed James Baldwin and never once asked him about his art. It made more sense in 1963 to talk to this famed author and civil rights campaigner about the civil rights movement and nonviolence. What we are really living through is nothing more or less than a revolution. Uh, 
The people who hold the power never give it away. The power that one is trying, and I think in this, from a certain point of view this may be happening for the first time in the history of the world, one is trying to achieve a bloodless revolution, a moral revolution. And in our situation we have no choice. It is not a matter of Negroes having been or, or being capable of being passive. Mm -hmm. It's a matter, again, of knowing something about patients which most white Americans don't know. And do you think that uh, this can be permanently uh, based in any effective sense on the operation of, uh, of fear? Uh, because certainly fear and power uh, are operating very heavily in the situation now. Uh, it, it is a question of power pitted against power in a way. Even nonviolence itself, as practiced in the South, is a question of tactic. Uh, it, can't, it can't become a healthy outcome as long as it's at that stage. The fear that you're talking of is a, is a white man's fear, not only of losing his power and what he thinks of as his safety, but his very identity. And what is crucial here is that he doesn't, he doesn't realize that in this terrible struggle that he has waged himself to keep the Negro, as we put it quaintly, in his place, he's destroyed his own identity. Any Negro alive in this country, no matter who he is, I mean, from a, from a narcotics addict, from the lowest of the low, even to the most hypocritical of the most hypocritical, knows more about who he is than his white counterpart does. The conditions imposed by the American Republic on, on the Negro have made it necessary, imperative, that he not fool himself about that. He may be destroyed by it, but it's not the same thing. I was born knowing, having to know, by the time I was five, that life was going to be hard and that I was going to die. White Americans discover this when they're about 30 and then they go to a psychiatrist. Quite possibly the most important contribution Elsa Knight Thompson made in journalism was not her own reporting, but her teaching others how to be good journalists. One of those she was responsible for hiring and training was Chris Koch, who was the first American journalist to go to Vietnam to report during the war, and who eventually became the executive producer of NPR's All Things Considered. I think she had an enormous influence through Pacifica. I think her influence was both direct on the people who listened to the many programs she did. I also think it was indirect, in that it influenced both the people who worked for her and the people who worked for the people who worked for her, almost like a ripple effect. I know that I learned more in the two years with Elsa than I've learned at, in the rest of my broadcasting career in terms of those kind of basic driving ideals that uh, at our best moments drive us as journalists. I see her influence all over in the number of people who have graduated from Pacifica who have gone on to be broadcasters at CBS or NBC or ABC or at National Public Radio or in the public broadcasting system elsewhere. They are simply all over. I think that all those people were indirectly affected by Elsa. But it seems being an award-winning journalist and mentor to some of the best journalists in the country was not always enough. She was not the easiest person to get along with. As Chris Koch said, Fire, she would be, she was very volatile. Fire would come into her eyes. And which is another similarity between her and Lewis Hill. They were both brilliant in their own right, and they both drove many people quite mad and angered most of the rest. Eventually, Elsa was too idealistic, too confrontational, Again, Chris Koch. Uh, for her, every point of view should be presented, along with the communists, along with George Lincoln Rockwell, 
Well, there were people who felt that this got us into trouble and we ought to cut back. We shouldn't be so provocative. Why do you have to go that far, they would always say. This all came to a head, these divisions came to a head, when we were investigated by the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. The Senate came back and offered a deal, essentially. Somebody offered a deal. And the deal was this. If you institute a loyalty oath, and if you get rid of one person who we have reason to believe may have had prior association with the Communist Party, we'll relicense you. Elsa and a portion of the staff were horrified by that notion. There will be no loyalty oath at Pacifica, she insisted, and we will not let any of our staff members be fired as a scapegoat for this. No, we'll stand up and we'll fight for our rights. We have every right to have done what we did, and we're not going to back down. Also, Elsa believed that this was the best and most successful ways to raise a lot of funds. Take an idealistic position, you can promote the Dickens out of it, and it's a great fundraising device. So I'm not saying this is not simply idealism, this is also... Uh, in her view, a certain kind of shrewdness on how best to confront this kind of a challenge. Well, it tore the foundation apart. It tore the foundation apart. Um, in the end, the compromise between all the parties was that there would be no loyalty oath, but the one member would leave the organization. He left it his own choice. He wasn't fired. He was asked to resign, and he agreed to resign. We were distraught. We didn't want him to resign. We wanted him to fight. Elsa did, too. I think that was the final straw. I think at that point, a good portion of management said, this woman is just simply too much trouble. We've got to get rid of her. And I think that's what led to her first firing. Yes, that's right, first. It's very hard to leave Pacifica, and many who do so, whether voluntarily or are removed, often end up coming back. Elsa did so, but eventually was fired again. The station was a great idea. It still is a great idea. And it goes through ups and downs depending on what the personnel at the microphone level is. And when those people are good, they can withstand bad management, bad boards, insufferable conditions, insufferable salaries, all those things. Because most of the people who come here come really to help fulfill a vision that they are never quite allowed to fulfill or really help to fulfill in the full sense of the word. Elsa Knight Thompson died on February 11, 1983. Together, she and Lewis Hill left a legacy for all at Pacifica to follow and to aspire to. They were dedicated to free speech, to an open forum, and not to any political movement. This openness enabled Pacifica to shine and to grow during its early years. Fifty-seven years later, Pacifica can reflect and see if the same ideals motivate the network today. Let us all hope they do, but if not, let us hope that the talented and dedicated people working and volunteering within the network are moving closer to that ideal. Because this is Pacifica, after all, the originator of free speech radio. Listening to From the Vault Remixed, a weekly program produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. For more information on this program or to purchase a copy of this program or any of the programs used within, go online at fromthevaultradio.org or pacificaradioarchives.org or call 1-800-735-0230.
Matthew Lazar's book, Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, was an invaluable resource in putting this program together. From the Vault is written, produced, and edited by Christopher Sprinkle. Senior producer is Mark Torres. Production coordinator, Edgar Toledo. Outreach by Sean Dellis. The music used within this program is by, in order, Sufjan Stevens, Craig Armstrong, Iron and Wine, and Crooked Fingers. And our theme music is courtesy of Los Angeles-based Parallel. For more information on Parallel or other music used today, please visit fromthevaultradio.org. This program was executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and myself. I'm Brian DeShazer. Thanks for listening. From the Vault, Remembered, a weekly Pacifica Radio Archives program. Each week, we'll invite a guest to enter the Archives Vault and choose any one program to play raw and unedited. Whether the program is a subject dear to them or just something they're dying to hear, whatever it is, they'll get to choose. And they'll introduce the piece and tell you why they chose it. Basically, they get to act as guest DJ for half an hour. This week, Pacifica is celebrating its 57th anniversary, and it's important to remember the man who dreamt up this noble experiment. Lewis Hill. So we've invited Lewis Hill's son, David Moore, to act as guest DJ here on From the Vault Remembered. Hello, this is David Moore. I've selected a little radio drama written by Pacifica founder Lewis Hill, dated January 1957. Its slightly self-mocking title is Section of a Soliloquy on a Poem by Robert Lowell. It features the voices of Richard Moore, Chuck Levy, and Lou Hill. The play acts out a conflicted stream of consciousness on a famous poem of Lowell's called At the Indian Killer's Grave, first published just after World War II. I've chosen this recording for a few reasons, positive and negative, public and personal. Generally, the play enacts Pacifica's mission on an intimate level to understand the causes of conflict underneath differences across ethnic, national, and other boundaries. Specifically, I'll offer two of my reasons before and two after the recording. First, the program's aesthetic energy, its fascination, enthusiasm, and insight into the intricacies of communication. As you'll hear, Lou takes us deep inside the spoken and written word, and inside the ear and eye. He imagines the inner operations of a mid-century reader's forebrain, 
as it struggles with psychological and historical demons raised by Lowell's poem. Pacifica is all about communication in its most compelling urgency and intensity, and this little radio drama conveys some of those qualities of dialogue that drove Lou and his circle to found listener-sponsored broadcasting. Second reason is the program's ethical energy, its politics, its challenge to America's view of itself. The play undercuts manifest destiny. Following on Lowell's poetic critique, Lou's script lays out some radical positions. He suggests indirectly that no apology is adequate for America's brutality and injustice to American Indians. What would it mean to ask simply how we in America got here today? Morally, not to mention legally, whose lands are we standing on? What would it mean to try to answer such questions? If America is founded on murder, as the play and the poem suggest, what must we do about that? The very questions are an act of dissent, as well as affirmation of America's potential for reform, and they are yet to be addressed 50 years later. So prepare yourself for a roller coaster ride inside this brain. Among allusions to other poets, there are rapid-fire references to medulla oblongata, dura mater, the cerebellum, plus libido files and memories of attempted suicide, along with graphic descriptions of the brutality of King Philip's war in 17th century Massachusetts, there is sneering reference to a fictional Pilgrim's Constitutional National Bank and Safe Deposit Trust Company, all interrupted with overblown Shakespearean verbal traps. The dialogue runs parallel to snippets of Lowell's important poem, which is read by Lou in full toward the end of the half hour. Lou's Everyman is apparently from Texas, aspiring to be a Boston brain. We should note a self-reflexive mirror image here, where Lou himself grew up in a family wealthy on Oklahoma oil and graduated from Stanford University. The first voice you will hear is Richard Moore as the academic narrator. Then Lou Hill is the reader's musing and defensive forebrain. Charles Levy enters as the loud antagonist, also inside the reader's brain pan. The narrator explains, both of the voices are merely aspects of the same soliloquy, chance cross-sections of a single consciousness. The result is zany. Levy's devilish antagonist is a cross between the Wizard of Oz and Peter Lorre. Lou's Everyman is a cross between Judy Garland's Dorothy and Edward R. Murrow. Richard's narrator is subtly Orwellian or Kafkaesque. Setting up what he calls the dubious design of our program, the narrator projects a refined distance from the bloody history at stake in the poem. His claim that the play is all abstraction and mere radio waves in fact satirizes the mass media convention of a news commentator's pseudo-objectivity. Pacifica's ethos was at the start explicitly not to duck responsibility for its political critique through such pretense. It's tempting to assume that Lou's views are voiced primarily through the mocking antagonist. He confronts American complacency. You're happier with one big phony truth than a big bunch of half-truths. Yet the play fades into a realm of aesthetic speculation. After pointing out that the poem is rather inclined toward morbidity, the narrator celebrates the endless dialogue of writer and reader. We move into the legacy of a very good poem as 
the experience and attitudes of several thousand mentalities. Let's now join those thousands and listen. In the following program, we expect to depart from custom in certain ways that may need explanation. This program is called Section of a Soliloquy. It concerns a poem, At the Indian Killer's Grave, written in recent years by Robert Lowell. The grave of the Indian killer in question is in Boston, in the old pilgrim burying ground beside King's Chapel. Mr. Lowell's poem is a meditation on the Puritan ancestors and their descendants who lie there, and on the modern descendant who assumes their heritage. In our program, we propose to view the poem as a reader might, who has just finished reading it, and who has an active forebrain. To this end, we present the reader's forebrain, purely as itself, soliloquizing upon itself. <laughs> hmm. Well... It's a long way from Texas, I guess. Real fancy Boston brain, that's what I'll be. Me and the old mother tissue. No <laughs> pie I made her. All that ripe mother membrane folded around and tucked in everywhere. <clears throat> Let's see. King's Chapel, King Philip. Well, we'll get to it. No hurry. Here is our first departure from custom. The reader's forebrain, which has just examined Mr. Lowell's poem, is about to read it again. In the few seconds of this interval, the forebrain is engaged in an effort to become the poet, as though the poem were about to be written by the reader. You will see at once that such an effort is absurd, and has nothing to do with the poem as the poet actually conceived it. Yet such things occur, and during these few seconds which will occupy us for half an hour, we do hope to give a definite character to the representation in this manner. Wonder how they get along out there. Hell of a life that is. Boy, if those hands could feel how everything just fits in here, snug like this. <laughs> ah, really something to know you're a brain. Just you and the mater. Nobody can throw me out. Be what I choose. She'll show him. Imagine being a naked eyeball out there. All that harsh air dashing on the tactiles. You will have noticed that this role, read by Mr. Hill, is a complete abstraction. Now, that is the principal novelty of our program to which we call attention. The forebrain, of course, does not converse with itself like a radio actor. On the other hand, it is rather like these sounds as they pass between the transmitter and your loudspeaker. In that state we call them waves, which, as you know, do not exist, but stand for something intangible that does. In our program, then, the utterances are to be understood as abstract in the last degree. Not only is the forebrain abstract, but also this other voice, its antagonist, read by Mr. Levy. <laughs> Mother tissues, Mama's big fat darling, be what he chooses. <laughs> Idiot, we'll make a proper Boston brain for him. About, let's see, twenty-six, twenty-seven, about twenty-seven thousand siblings down in the teensy-weensy left little toe alone, trying to remind us that pinch is a bad pair of shoes. So what do we do? 
We think it's a big hankering for the girlfriend. <laughs> Mama's only child, eh? What of a hindbrain is more sense? Tell you what, IQ, old tomato. For a good, solid, working animal with everything necessary provided for, I'll take the medulla oblongata any day. Another complete abstraction, as you see. And the final abstraction we ask you to consider is that both of the voices you have heard are merely aspects of a single soliloquy, chance cross-sections of the same consciousness. Our purpose, of course, is to arrive, along with the reader, at an object unusually real and not at all abstract, that is, Mr. Lowell's poem, At the Indian Killer's Grave. This will be the dubious design of our program. From time to time, as these few seconds elapse, we will interrupt to check our progress. Now... The meditation may proceed. Destroyer, <laughs> the intelligence has just one enemy. Do you know that? <laughs> just one enemy in the whole universe, and that's you. Why, old chap? Didn't dream you were listening. Thought you were talking in your sleep, as usual. Dirty coward. Sneaking around here with your lies. Mm, well, I can always find a spot down in the cerebellum. You'd be sorry, though. Just think. No more definitions. No more insights, dear brother. You're a fraud. But who'd bring you the right dossiers? Always making up stories. See? I've already pulled the warming-up files. They're right here. What? Why don't you get out? To which of my several characters, old pumpkin rind, art thou referring? Always talking about sources. I'm always claiming that... Ah, my character is history. Custodian of the Gestalten. But, dear brother... Just remember... I'm in charge oh, here. absolutely, old chap. You're the big cheese, no question of it. I'm a Boston brain. You can like it or not. Simply delighted. At least we won't have to wrestle with Miss What's-Her-Name for a moment. Libido file's getting a bit dog-eared, you know. Mm, let's see now. Let's see. I'll warm up a little. Bones cast in a little low, dry garret. Rattled by the rat's foot only. Year to year. Fine. That's Elliot, of course, talking about London. I'm, I'm just warming up. The city's fiery parcels all undone. Mm -hmm. Already snow submerges an iron year. Crane on New York. Some, sometimes, in its box of sky, lavender and cornerless, the moon rattles like a fragment of angry candy. Cummings on Cambridge. Excellent. Very close. What about that delightful one of his... Next to, of course, God, America, I love you, land of the pilgrims, and so forth. In addition... Pardon, uh, old chap, I do want to get this one other thing in. It's right at the head of the file. Although there were some forty heavens or more, sometimes I peer above them all. Sometimes I hardly reach a score. Sometimes to hell I fall. George Herbert, on the inscrutable God. <laughs> Shut up. In addition... In addition, I'm a, I'm a vast mercantile heritage enshrined in the Pilgrim's Constitutional National Bank and Trust Company, Beacon Street, and I collect early American printing. Why, brother, I've never seen you better. Only essential thing that you've left out is the whores around the common. I shun and despise them. That you do. On the other hand, your maternal cousin, Forsyth, being a trustee of the Mayflower Society, you have a family interest in the city's museum. Oh, I most certainly do. Now, <clears throat> behind King's Chapel, 
What the earth has kept whole from the jerking noose of time extends its dark enigma to Jehoshaphat. Mm-hmm. Nor will King Philip plate the just man's scalp in the Wailing Valley. Mm-hmm. Well? Well, you see, Sappy, I know you won't care for it, but I have this whole file collated with the one on 3rd Avenue. 3rd Avenue? Well, that hasn't anything to do with anything. What? The little kennel we had, five flights up under the L? You'll remember. We had the corpus crouching on the window ledge, all set to jump. No, I, I, want, to, I want to go into this King Philip thing. Down yeah, the... below, all the traffic stopped. Some women screamed. A priest and a cop came running upstairs into the room. Then what happened? No, no, I'm a Boston brain. Come on, Tubby, calm down, calm down. What happened then? What? Well, I... well... We had the legs crawl out on the cornice and required the fingers to clutch the bricks. So the cop couldn't grab an ankle. But the priest kept whispering at us round the edge of the window. And how did our siblings of the Membrana Timpani report his comment? Pray. How? Pray to the Virgin. Why? Well, then love will be born. <laughs> Fool of a priest! Great moment that was for spinning theology. Pray to the Virgin and love will be born. <laughs> but dost thou remember, Frater Imbecilis, who came charging up the right frontal lobe with the right dossier? You had a pricey on the Virgin Mother that said she's a pretty good symbol. Pretty good one. Stands for the end of winter and the beginning of spring. Winter stands for purifying the earth. And spring stands for creation. And creation stands for love. And then the earth means the mind, and love means getting an honest-to-God first-rate idea. And praying stands for purifying, and purifying stands for thinking. And you said he had something there. We ought to try it. That's a good chap. <laughs> uh, so we steered the corpus back inside to the armchair, and the cop slammed the window. Saved your neck, didn't I? And, and on Walpurgis night and May Day... The maidens used to cleanse themselves with new leaves and blossoms, which stood for the mind, getting ready to receive the creative impulse. Oh, all right, all right. We've covered this point. That is, that is they, they prayed to the Virgin and love was all born. All right, that's all in the dead files now. Oh, look, Rumi, I got us out of the jam, see, so forget it. I just... No, no, I'm very glad you reminded me. I'm very glad. Splendid thing to remember the gardens of this life occasionally. One's really miraculous attributes. Pray to the Virgin Look, and love. You're a Boston brain now, aren't you? I am indeed a Boston brain, full of love. Okay, Boston. Now here's the point. Just stay a Boston brain, just like that. Hold that. Now try to remember how you got us into the jumping Jiminy's back on Third Avenue. What got into you, anyway? Nothing gets into me. Best helmet in the universe I've got. And a vault all to myself. Mother sees to that, eh? But, Captain, oh, my Captain, you're in pretty bad shape. What happened? In Boston, questions of this category are not entertained. Ah, not at home today to the fundamental facts. Bobby boy, thou art on the mark. I will tolerate nothing that remotely resembles... An About two seconds have elapsed. We would like to direct attention at this point to the reader's completely subjective relationship with the poem. It provokes in his forebrain an alarming recollection from his own past. 
and already Mr. Lowell's poem has become identified with the tension or anxiety which once caused the reader that crisis. On the other hand, the actual sources of that crisis are suppressed in the reader's forebrain, and instead he seeks to transfer their meanings to the poem's context and find his own history there under another name. However, even this modest transfer of identity, which is scarcely the poet's, the forebrain resists. From this we may calculate how little the poet is to be held responsible for any misunderstanding imputed to him. What is proper to King's Chapel in such matters? Swoons! Tis a miracle! A proper dusty mind in a dusty nightcap! And art thou very, very proud of thy family? I am uncommonly proud of a name which has been enrolled at Harvard for more than three centuries. And of thy forebears? Sir, in the arachnoid of this chamber mingle the finest bloods of Plymouth Colony. Bradford, Endicott, Winslow, Quincy. Select as a rare liqueur, These were thy fathers, who thwarted nature on the alien shore, subdued the savage, established trade, and implanted liberty? All is from their hands. Freedom, courage, hardihood, high principle, and, sir, good, solid respectability. Their monuments are these mighty ports, this great land of the free, with due emphasis to that portion north of Providence and south of the Merrimack. And not least, not least, sir, the mortgager of the same, the Pilgrim's Constitutional National Bank and Safe Deposit Trust Company, democracy, enterprise, America. Scholars, sir, philosophers, <laughs> statesmen. <laughs> Murderers! Men, men with a divine mission, ma makers of wealth. Murdering bigots, the pack of them, smirking thieves. Rather have an honest crook for an ancestor myself. The pious jackals. All right, you. I'm in charge here. Ha <laughs> ha. Fatuous counterfeits. Every one of them. Come on, Soupy. Own up. Oh, there you go again. Can't blink the facts, brother. I give you now the just man, that great spiritual progenitor of Yankeedom, Josiah Winslow. Hooray! You're, you're, Hooray! you're just loyal, that's all. You're a traitor. Sticky wad, old chap. Honest, it ain't me. I got the raw file on him right here. Listen to this. Born 1629. Ah, here. Governor of Plymouth Colony, 1673 to 1680. Stern, upright man. Flawless Puritan character. Various dissolute Indians to make false accusations against their people. Demanded and obtained consent of Indians to surrender weapons. Immediately incited riots by gibbeting Indians at Plymouth. Aimed by repeated cruelties to foment general uprising of Indians. Excuse for massacre. A plan successful. Proceeded to starve, slaughter, or sell into foreign slavery entire Indian population of Massachusetts, known for great piety. Well, well, let me see that part. Pleasure, brother. Look it over. And meantime, I'll just whip through a few notes here on King Philip, the poor man's martyr. <laughs> if you don't mind, eh? Well, well, go ahead. Here we are. King Philip, a name of contempt applied by pilgrims to Metokamit, chief of the Wampanoag Indians of Massachusetts. A brave, honest, intelligent man of great dignity, devoted to peace, consented to demand of Governor Josiah Winslow that his people surrender their arms, uh, saw his people massacred, the males brained, the squaws raped and gutted, the small children impaled, own wife and child sold to slavery, murdered in 1676 by a fellow Indian bribed with rum by the pilgrims, 
head severed from his body, presented on a platter to Governor Winslow, mounted on a pole by same, and displayed in a public place in Plymouth for twenty-five years till the weather wore it out. Twenty-five years till the weather wore it out. <laughs> the little pilgrims and the big pilgrims passed proudly by to church. Well, I, I don't... I don't see why they had to do that. King Philip doesn't say here whether they had a sign nailed above the head like the one that read, King of the Jews. My gosh, I... <laughs> Too bad we lack certain details. In Jerusalem, the people shouted at the King of the Jews, Reka! What thy godly forebear shouted at the head of King Philip is not recorded, but presumably it was a direct translation... Fool. Well, my gosh. You I... said that. It ain't really proper to Boston, either. Well, let me see the file. After all, that was a long time ago. Murderers. Delicious. How does it feel? What? What do you mean? Come on, Gumbo. Get in character. Big Boston brain, ain't you? How does it feel to feed on all that murderer's blood? Well, golly. Faith I... that he's an Irishman all of a sudden? I am not. I just want to think about it. <laughs> Uh, you and old Piamater, eh? Well, well, I guess we owe them an apology. <laughs> now that's really in the part. Yes, sir. Powder thy wig and bow to the ladies with their bellies ripped. And every Thanksgiving on each and every grave lay a nice new ten-dollar bill from the Pilgrim's Constitutional National Bank. Well, we can't do anything about it now. <laughs> All of the past, eh? Guilty or not. I can't help what they did. You're listening to From the Vault Remembered, the Pacifica Radio Archive's weekly program where we invite a special guest to come in and play DJ, choosing any one program out of the nearly 50,000 hours worth of programming inside the Pacifica Radio Archive's vault. This week, on Pacifica's 57th anniversary, we've invited David Moore, Lewis Hill's son. He selected Section of a Soliloquy on a Poem, a radio drama written by his father. Here's David again. Now, a third reason I selected this soliloquy from so many pieces in the archives is its limitations. The writing is so very good, and the acting is quite good as well. But it is dated, and worse. This is a complex issue, but the clipped, semi-British diction of mid-century broadcasting is so urbane and sophisticated that it excludes some of the audience it seeks. The play's psychological insights tend to remain cerebral, the drama's use of Shakespearean discourse and Latinate anatomical terms are rapid-fire clever and devastatingly satirical, but strangely limiting. No one would suggest now or then that Pacifica needs to dumb down its presentation. Listener sponsors of all backgrounds want the most intelligent broadcasting they can get. Yet the language itself points to a critical problem in Pacifica's early days a problem that the following decades have struggled to overcome. We can hear elitism in these brilliant and talented voices of Pacifica's formative years. A certain aloofness links to the aesthetic and ethical, even political boundaries of class and race. The real danger here is that peace comes to be seen not as an exercise of principle, but of privilege. More than this general exclusiveness, the condescending tone that permeates the peace points to a central issue in Pacifica by negative example. How both to criticize and to educate, thus to liberate. In other words, how to communicate. As historian Matthew Lazar concisely put the paradoxical question of Pacifica, 
How do you encourage people to speak and think freely, yet arrive at your conclusions at the end of the day? The same question plays out in different forms today. We're back to the primary Pacifica paradox. We can witness the old balance of dissent and dialogue tipping in this early, dazzling production. Of course, the genre of this political psychodrama requires tension and honest clash of oppositions. But it is equally fascinating to imagine how this little tragedy might turn towards sincere insight rather than a kind of refined aesthetic despair. The trick is not to kill the Indian all over again. In retrospect, we know that Native American artists and activists in the generation following this broadcast have envisioned ways for tribal sovereignty to be reborn and to flourish, in fact, struggling to reshape America from the ground up. Some of those voices, John Trudell, Leonard Peltier, Winona LaDuke, Sherman Alexie, and others, were not even born at the founding of Pacifica or at the publication of Lowell's poem, but Pacifica did indeed provide them eventually with a microphone. We may listen to Lou's soliloquy partly as an invitation to those native voices. My fourth reason for selecting this piece as representative of those early years is its beloved personnel and their bold focus. It's interesting to note that the poet Robert Lowell, like these founders of Pacifica, was a conscientious objector during World War II. Lowell, like Lou, served prison time for his pacifist stance. I don't know Chuck Levy, but listening to my two fathers, Lou Hill and Richard Moore, who raised me, is gratifying in itself. And further, having spent much of my adult life in Indian country, it's a big thing for me to discover that Lou and Richard and others in Pacifica, including the listeners, were this engaged with Native American issues when I was still playing cowboys and Indians in Berkeley in the 1950s. So I hope, as I know Lou did and Richard still does today in 2006, that listening to these voices from five decades ago has entertained and challenged you. Wishing you peace in the struggle for peace. This is David Moore. You've been listening to From the Vault, Remembered, a weekly program produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. For more information on this program or to purchase a copy of this program or any of the programs used within, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 800-735-0230 or go online at pacificaradioarchives.org. From the Vault Remembered is produced, written, and edited by Christopher Sprinkle. Senior producer is Mark Torres. Production coordinator, Edgar Toledo. Outreach by Sean Dallas. Our theme music is courtesy of Los Angeles-based Parallel. For more information on Parallel or other music used on today's program, please visit fromthevaultradio.org. This program was executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and myself. I'm Brian DeShazer. Thanks for listening.